Welcome to the Backwards Infect at Twitter and Gmail under that same name. I have just one question for you. How soon is now? Here we go. Luke, I am your brother. What's up, homie? What's going on, man? We meet on planet Earth. Somehow we have a platform to speak to people and bring forth a message to listen to or to not listen to. To be or not to be. That is the question. Luke, I am your brother. Of course, that's uh, shifted a little bit from the classic Star Wars, Luke, I am your father. You remember that pretty clearly, correct? I do. I'm the butt of those jokes my whole life. You've been the butt of like the Luke, I am your father joke over and over again, right? Yeah, which is not really a joke. It's pretty cool. Yeah, they just kind of like them calling me Candy Cane or like Cane and Abel. Like it's just what everybody goes to when they see the name Luke. I love Candy Cane. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) That's like new spiritual cane, Candy Cane, because you've got all these sweet droplets now. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Candy Cane. It was like 10 years ago, I coached with another coach who was named Candy. So together we were Candy Cane. It was like, oh my gosh. Yeah, that's perfect. I can't even. I haven't heard that name in a while. It seemed like when I was growing up, candy was pretty prevalent, but I haven't heard candy since, I mean, years. So, Luke, I am your father. There's a there's a condition in the collective consciousness called the Mandela effect. The line, Luke, I am your father, does not exist. It's not from the Star Wars movie. Now, when I first heard this, I freaked out and I went and find like every version of Star Wars because I have it on VHS. And I and of course, you can go watch it on Disney Plus. But you go back, you watch the movie. That line is not in the movie. So we have a misremembering in the collective that we all agree on but it never existed. Luke, I am your father. Correct. You know, that's the one line that I hear. Like if someone comes up to me, they don't even necessarily say Luke. They just say, I am your father. That's right. That was never in the movie. Luke, I am your father is not in the movie. If you go back and watch it, the line is no, I am your father. So in the collective, we're all misremembering. And there's like a condition. It comes from 2009. It's called the Mandela effect because this lady was writing this blog. And she was describing how she thought Mandela died in a prison in Africa in the 1980s. And he didn't. He actually lived until 2013. But when she said that as a mistake, she realized that there was a bunch of other people who also think Mandela died in the 1980s. So Luke, I am your father is an example. Mandela is an example. And like another one is mirror, mirror on the wall. 
That's not from the movie. Mirror, mirror on the wall in Snow White is not correct. But it's such, it's so in the lexicon that we have a misremembering. But I think it's interesting when you look at it from the standpoint of like mechanical spiritualism or a spiritual awakening, because that's one of the things you're doing is understanding the fantasy of your own history on a personal level. But with the Mandela effect, it's really cool because you can see it on a collective level. It's a good point. I mean, they call it something. Uh, I think it's kind of along the lines of what we talk about, you know, giant game of telephone with, with anything that's passed down. Um, my, I had a contrast word this evening. If you were, um, I don't know. Have I ever done the word salvation? No. And you can apply the way you opened it. You can apply what you, you, you could say the Mandela effect as far as how things are passed down too, because it, it all awakening is all about the unlearning process and how you perceive a meaning and how you uh, take that in as truth for yourself. So the word salvation to me as though passed down is uh, more along the lines of something that you would say is, is, is easy. And I think you said last podcast, yeah, you're one Sunday, you feel compelled, compelled from the heart to say a couple sentences and really mean it. And you have salvation for the rest of your life, which includes after death. And my contrast to that is now seeing clearly is that salvation for you or for me, you can clearly see that it's past thought. It's a new state. It's a new state. It's something that's acquired. When it's passed down to you, it's as though I'm not, I'm not sharing like doom and gloom. Like if, five percent of the people don't earn what you would call salvation here that they're twirling down into the pits of hell for eternity that's not the message either the message is factual as far as experience so salvation is salvation factually from something like it's an actual experience that then creates uh, a commitment for you to move forward in that new state or in our experiences, ha having a higher state experience, experience in it and having the devotion and commitment to be on the pathway back to that. So for me, it's a process in which the meaning or what you would say, Oh, it's passed down. It's kind of a perfect type Mandela effect thing because when you're passed down certain things, it was taught from this person to this person to this person. So it's like, okay, that's, that's pretty much what you have to do. So it's very easy to accept that as truth. The only problem is it doesn't resonate long-term. You know, why, if someone 
has asked for salvation, but in five years they're lost or they commit suicide. Like they didn't get salvation from anything. This is, this isn't fantasy. It's factual. I think that's where you get lost in the um, pass down of this. It, they make it a mystical thing, but at the same time, mysticism is factual. Like it's experiential factual, but it involves attaining that salvation. It, it, it involves, um, the biggest, the biggest contrast for me is it's, it's about, it's not, it's about me. It's about me within as far as salvation. It's about me. How do I get to my own salvation and learned behavior? What was passed down was that wage was already made. And I know it's very counter to, you know, all I'm asking or all I'm sending out is to understand that there's people, I have this wrote down to right below it. It comes down to the point I'm, I'm ultimately getting to is you can rely on the experiences of someone else for salvation or for just one moment with an open mind. Can you look at it differently and see that you can have the same experiences for that salvation? I'm talking about to like the prophets in the Bible, like how you look at them and you're like, I can't. That's part of the whole effect. That's part of the whole thing. Like, I can't attain that, so I have to have an easy salvation. It has to be. It relies on the experiences of someone else, that salvation that's passed down. It's not factual. It's based on the mysticism from someone else. The point I'm making is, is it possible for you to have the experiences yourself? Yeah. I mean, one of the big words that came to mind while you were talking was responsibility. So I think that's where I found myself. I mean, there is a particular understanding. I find myself in this now and then how do you perceive moving forward from that spot? And it, it's almost like the development of conscious, which is weird because, I mean, that's very, that's in the word of consciousness, but the development of that awareness like reveals the conscience. And now you have responsibility, responsibility that you didn't have before. You have responsibility to where it's like, um, it's the cipher predicament out of the matrix. I mean, do you contemplate like plugging yourself back in? You know, do you keep drinking on the weekends? Do you, you know, just try to forget 
the state that you achieved and see if you can go back to, to the way it was? Or do you honor the fact that you were shown understanding in your own experience? And do you move forward now with responsibility acting on your conscience? And I see it as like a just a path that is in the direction of salvation. And then there's the other path, which is in a, in a direction of ignorance. But once you understand the path, there's a heavy weight of responsibility to move in the direction of salvation. Can I explore the divinity within? And I'm still, you know, it's unclear, like, do you achieve salvation? I mean, that's, everybody's experience is going to be different. But, I mean, in terms of, like, what you're aiming at, I mean, it's, it's, it ends up being in somewhat of an easy decision because when you, honor your own self-understanding and your commitment to truth. I mean, you're kind of staring something in the face and the idea of turning back around and letting yourself be re-hypnotized by the system, that path of ignorance is, is, um, doesn't look very appealing. Put it that way. The perfect opposite of salvation would be ignorance. And uh, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I mean, it's so true. Um, the word salvation, I think, more comes from a religious side as well. Uh, because salvation, the way it's used and depicted for control is saved from sin, saved from eternity in hell, saved from, you know, a place that you may be going to in salvation for spirituality. It's salvation. Like you said, it's the path forward. It's really from all we can tell it's the next state to the next state to the next state. Salvation being the progress in that even that first state that you experienced, you know, that's a salvation from the, the thoughts that are just going through your head all the time. I, re I remember mechanics wise, how we've talked about staying in, um, and there may even being a doorway for how long you do something. And I remember, and I've always talked about it, it was like a two to three week period that you got through. So beyond, best way I could put it is uncontrollable nagging thoughts beyond that state to where they don't exist anymore. That salvation but not necessarily the way it's described. It's still a pathway, like it's still progression. It's still consciousness. 
is still a consciousness that wants to ascend. It's still consciousness that's wants out of a lower grade. So the best way we can depict it is like you said, yeah, it's the opposite of ignorance, but it's a pathway. It's never ending. Like you, the concept being at the lowest level consciousness that I ever was in my life was ignorance, (laughs) ignorance of, but the, the one thing I can say about me is I have the contrast and I have the experience to talk about it because my sincerity was always there. And, and if you have that level of sincerity, even in ignorance, it's still a seed. So there's no damnation or punishment or anything we're trying to prove about the word salvation, because even in my ignorance, well, there is one, one, one factor that can still, you're still throwing out seeds and that's sincerity. You know, I I wasn't oblivious to sincerity. I knew what that meant. And looking back, I now know that I was planting seeds uh, just because of the level of sincerity, but still had to, the ignorance part. But having zero idea what salvation meant. And then, you know, you get into salvation and what that looks like today for, I just see some of the most, I mean, no other word for it, god-awful um, ways that the word salvation is used for manipulation and control uh, in a numbers game and like, you know, how many people can you save today? How many of those cards can you pass out? Um, so the ignorance and the lower consciousness can get really low. The mind can get really closed and that tunnel vision can get um, really, really, really tunnel. Well, yeah, anytime you have somebody with the idea that that they can offer it to to somebody, like, I have salvation here for you, just come and get it. Like, that's clearly not the way to salvation. If it's not first an internal process, then it's just some kind of power structure conflict going on. And we see, you know, what that, looks like when you you know zoom out and you look at all the cultures and all the cultures push into spirituality and how it manifests and how some of it you don't really recognize as in terms of like a true path of ascension of spirituality but yeah i i I do think it's it's just salvation that you get a piece of it you get a piece of it in your initial liberation when you can understand the path of ascension, even though you can't walk it perfectly at that point. But as that understanding initially is salvation. But as soon as you achieve that piece of salvation, all that's doing is revealing the mechanics of morality really for the first time. And now, you know, instead of like doing good deeds in order to, you know, bank enough credit to allow yourself some kind of salvation and judgment at the end. Now, moment by moment, breath by breath, 
you can take responsibility and you can stand guard to your own process of mental manifestation. And that's a very disciplined, um, very disciplined. It, it's a very, very uh, intense project once you're there. But once you start, you you are more and more revealed that you're moving on this ascension path. And I'm assuming as you go, you're going to get little bits of salvation on the way. Um, but this like ultimate salvation, like what they want to hand out at the candy stores, like I don't know that you, I don't know that you achieve that in terms of you know, 99.9% of people on the, on, I, uh, clearly there have been people who have achieved complete salvation through the matter and form. I mean, we know it's possible, but that, that path is a relentless path once you get on it. And, um, like the, the way that salvation is used, I don't really see it, um, I don't really see it developing for like a huge majority of the people. I'll give you a good example of giving it away. Like you just said, there's many microphones that are spouting out truth all over the world. Many, many different platforms that are uh, metaphorically screaming from the mountaintops metaphorically all over the world now microphones are everywhere points more towards the path because i'm not saying there's a lot of people that don't want to listen there's a lot of people that want to hear more there's a lot of people that want to hear more there's a lot of people that want to get on the path but that even if you get someone that comes on the show and you tell them exactly there exactly you know where the door is that's still a process there's no like instantaneous uh, well there's there's anomalies in every situation can't <laughs> um, not saying that that can't can't happen but I'm saying Christ incarnated Jesus Christ could not wake people up and that's evident when he was on the cross and said, forgive them. They know not what they do. He wasn't talking to awake people. He was talking to asleep people on the cross. That was the masses. You know, he had his people, but he couldn't wake up the masses. It just is what it is. It kind of leads me to this uh, devotion that I was doing earlier where on the Gnostic uh, courses, and she was talking about a fruit tree and think about a fruit tree. And there's many, many seeds on a fruit tree, many seeds. How many, how many seeds end up being another fruit tree? It's like less than 1% um, become an actual fruit tree out of all the seeds that that fruit tree is going to pr produce over its life. It might be like 0.0001% of those seeds that that fruit tree produces 
is actually going to grow another fruit tree just as fruitful as that tree. So it's rare, right? But right. the perceptions all around us that we can see are nature are the same for humans. We're seeds. Right. We throw out seeds, millions of seeds. There's only a few. I mean, there's only, you know, the epic Jesus Christ who incarnated Christ. And we have a few that have come to that Christ consciousness, but not many. And the other point I wanted to make is nature doesn't care. That was in the devotion too. Like there is no, there is no consequence. It's just, it's a evolving evolving consciousness right so now like 2000 years ago in the christ days people were more asleep but i have if you want to talk about like optimism and spirituality i think you have to be the most optimistic about where we are right now because people unlike that age it i mean there's microphones all over the world right now and a lot of people are saying exactly what they need to say there's a lot of people saying it and there's people listening or there's people not listening. And there's people saying, well, that resonates. I'm, I want to explore this path. There's no magic pill, but the seeds are manifesting like crazy right now. Multiple different people. Technology has allowed this thing to spread a lot more easier. I mean, this was like, walked around by camel back in the day. This you know, that's in, a lot, lot different. It is interesting when you look at the Bible and there's, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, speculation, but for sure, like the Bible and the biblical process was designed and manipulated in a certain way, meaning the Bible isn't necessarily complete. So it's not like Jesus had a podcast and you could just hear and see and understand what he did from point A to point B. No, you, you have like little pieces of history and they put them together the way that they want you to view them and they left stuff out. But the re what you just said is interesting because that's completely different today. Like, if you want to understand, like, Eckhart Tolle, I mean, there's nobody, like, holding him back. There's nobody, like, sifting through the information and making sure some stays hidden and then some gets out. And then that's just one. And there's all kinds of others where it's just, like, a complete broadcast all the time of the message in its most raw form. And what's interesting is like, this has never been seen in what we understand as history. Maybe there's a historic time that I'm not aware of long ago, but in terms of what we understand as history, we've never had anything like this where it's just the broadcast of the raw message. And that's what's so interesting with you and I, because you like you listen to another podcast or like you find another author and you know immediately like oh this guy's got it like all they have to say is that the ego is real the death of it reveals god that's the entire message it's very very simple make yourself as empty as possible and there is god
but there's so many people on that message now. But it's also very, very revealing because people try to complicate that message and people try to, you know, follow some kind of dogma or like talk about spirituality or talk about signs or all this complication in the message. And you can tell right away, it's like, oh, they're lost in the ego and they've have no idea what the message is. They wouldn't even know it if they heard it. So it's this really weird time with the collective consciousness where I I am amazed as I move around now, the clarity of message I hear from multiple sources, including ancient texts, including the Bible. Like it comes through clear as a bell now because there's so many things that Christ said that when I look at him with this new perspective, he did understand that it was his own ability to look inside the self that revealed the God to him. I mean, it's just, it's over and over when I read the scriptures, but it's not just him. It's all the ancient religions Every single one I looked at, it doesn't take but 10 minutes and it's just screaming at you that, oh, they were onto it. But just like the Mandela effect, like there's a principle to the collective conscious, which is just corrosion over time. Like that message has always been corroded over time. But now it's interesting because the new format with the digital broadcast of the message like it really can't be messed with not in the same way it's it's been in the past so yeah who knows i mean maybe this is the great awakening moment that we're about to witness i heard a point of view on tv this week that sparked my interest And it was someone talking about the newer and younger generations. First of all, we know Prince Harry is in the news with Meghan and their exit. And someone's perspective kind of hit the nail on the head. And she was describing that the newer generation seems to be more. She didn't use words like awake. But whenever I hear this, I see a collective younger people that are more awake in seeing things clearly to the degree of not accepting like what royalty is. Because if you break that down, um, you know, KK had asked me, when she saw Prince Harry doing an interview and she, we kind of got into the discussion of why the brothers were feuding. And I basically told her just in a way that she could understand. I said, well, one brother is waking up and the other isn't. And you can see the wake up of, 
I'm not saying anti-establishment because that's if you look at royalty and you break it down to what it is and you break it down to language, like people who are not royalty, I think are called Commonwealth. Is that not what common people over in Britain, something to that degree? Is it? Yeah, maybe. So, and if you're in, you're called royalty, I believe. So (laughs) if you break that down, just as like looking at it as clear and simplistic as a child would, you're basically, as Warren Buffett said, hitting the ovarian lottery by being in that small percentage who's born into the seed of that family. So the fairness of that is ridiculous. And I think younger generations are seeing that for what it is. And it's like, how did this establishment get to what it is? And I remember seeing the TV, like people were glued to the TV when the queen died. And, you know, I'm not showing any disrespect to a death. I think it, you know, you should honor the life of a, of a person. That's fine. I get it. Um, but that was overboard. That was overboard by a lot of asleep people. A lot of asleep people. And you got to take someone out. If you look at it just based on mathematics, if someone was born just on the other side of the road, just on the other side of the road, like same day, Sunday, two o'clock in the morning, they are Commonwealth. Although Harry is Prince Harry because he was just born on the other side of the road. Like when you break it down and you look at it as a child, it's like, how did we get to this place as, as, as it is? And, and I see it so objectively and I look at him and yeah, it's popular. It's, it's popular in the news. It's kind of intriguing to watch. I think, um, I think, you know, there's controversy about how people feel about Prince Harry and Meghan. I, on on one hand, I'm all for when stuff like happens because I think if nothing else, you're shaking it up. And when you shake it up, people have no other option but to look at it for what it is. They have to look at Prince Harry and Meghan. They have to look at his brother and they have to analyze it and they have to start asking questions. And whenever you're put in the, where there's a shakeup and you have to focus on something, and you have to start asking like, you know, those brass tacks questions that you you actually start to see some good signs of what is this? Who created it? Because that was created some like 100, 200, someone created that and it took off. And now it is what it is today. Yeah, that's. A lot of that I haven't been paying attention to, uh, mostly because it's very hard for me to even look at some of that stuff without understanding like my own judgmental nature of of what's going on. Um, but it it is interesting, like when you you try to look at like you know the woke movement and the younger generation and what's going on nowadays, and it is kind of interesting because they're it's bringing so much pain. It kind of goes along a theory, like who's closer to waking up. I mean, is it 
you know, the person that's well off and rich, or is it the person that's, you know, poverty stricken and, you know, or incarcerated? It's like those, those pressure situations are, are the places where conscious and consciousness and awareness are born. Like when you're so well off and you're so comfortable, like it's, it's way less of an opportunity for the awareness and now it's it's weird because there's there's like a new slang in Hollywood um, for nepotism. I can't remember what it's like neppies or something like that. But they're they're talking about like actors or actresses like shouldn't have the roles that they're getting based on like who their parents were. So like Jamie Lee Curtis gets called out. Like, why do you get all these roles? You're just there because of your dad. You know, so it's like just like what you say, like you were just born in that spot. Now you're a famous actress. And now it's weird because the woke, it's like the snake is eating its own tail. So they just like go after smaller and smaller groups. And now like Hollywood's literally like turning on itself and the snake has come around and it's devouring its own community. It's really kind of interesting to see like where all that stuff goes. But from that like disoriented um, dog eat dog, you know, collective fractal separation of collective consciousness as, you know, groups turn on other groups and the groups get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. I mean, does that create an opportunity for somebody to like pick their head up and say like what is this history that we just created like what is this narrative that we're so invested in because the whole point is eventually it's going to turn back on you cause and effect what do you think yeah. when you see the pope on tv what comes to mind when you get a visual of the Pope going to the window, nice robe, big cross hanging around his neck, about to speak to the thousands of people? I mean, it's just, it's just conditioning. But honestly, what comes to mind is I see a pedophile ring. That's first and foremost. I mean, I, I, just, I can't see that system any other way. I mean, it's, it's the most organized institutional abuse of children that I've ever seen in my lifetime. I don't know of any other organization that's done more damage. So when I see that stuff, I mean, that's one of my um, conditioned things that I know is there. Like I, I don't have, I think of it as like the anti-Christ. The system is anti-Christ. I'm not calling the Pope the Antichrist. I'm saying that consciousness that they've created within that system is anti-Christ. And you can see that clearly by the manifestation of their deeds. I mean, that's why that other Pope, that one that just died, that's why he had to resign. That's the first Pope that resigned and I don't know the history of it, but a long ass time. But why did he resign? He resigned because the entire institution got out of control and they were 
hiding bad behavior and covering up all kinds of madness globally, internationally. I learned a lot from Gene's last, last video about sexual abstinence too. And part of the reason that the cause and effect, when you talk about universe laws, when you have seriously misguided people, but possibly even well-intended, you know, I'm, I'm not even on the line of like these people being malicious. I'm on the line of like cause and effect. And he laid it out ignorant. Yeah. Ignorant. He laid it out clearly though. What happens when you're uh, sexually abstinent as opposed to sexual alchemy and, and the abstaining from, and the buildup of that energy being like a nuclear reactor and what that manifests, like it's cause and effect. Like we're meant, we're meant to like, abstain for many many years and what that does internally and what that creates you can see the cause and effect and it's just right. it's uh you can see the karmic effect of your actions even though you right. say oh sexual abstinence is the highest thing you can do you know that's that's not the point. I know you're probably way more better at this subject than any. That's why I learned so much of, of on the last the last video from Gene. But it made so much sense what he was saying. Like you, you look at the monastery, or you look at the sexual abstinence thing, and you you put two and two together, and you even to you just look around at you know the cause and effect of where we at are at today in society. And man, there's a lot of things going on where we're incredibly ignorant to the power of sexual energy and how we're supposed to harness that, how we're supposed to use that. Um, and how we're supposed to see it. I mean, it's one of the most, it's probably, if you talk about the seven, it's one of the most mystical and confusing things to look at clearly on the path. I mean, I, I feel like I'm I'm figuring it out, but it seems to be one of the most mystical parts of of this whole journey. Um, that, yeah. I mean, that's, it just is what it is. And in sexual abstinence, it's like you said, it's like the easy thing. Like they come to an agreement like 50, 60, 70 years ago and said, this is the right thing to do. We're just not going to think about anything. You're not going to do anything. There's going to be no activity down below. And that's like the exact wrong thing to do. But he explained it like a nuclear PowerPoint. Like what, what would happen? But what happens inside to your chakras and, I mean, it's complete. You can see the effect of it. It's, 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 it's again, it's factual. You can see what's going on. That's all we're doing is just pointing it out, bringing light to it. Yeah. And you can see like, as an institution moves forward in time that, you know, they would kind of like 
what we were talking about with the Mandela effect, like they would be moving forward based on stuff they've done in the past. So because they've made like celibacy rules in the past, they move forward with the same celibacy rules. But if they didn't understand like why the celibacy rules were there to begin with, like, let's say like just take religion out of it and just say like, I'm going to make a club tomorrow. Like I'm going to make a club. I'm going to put like a, something out on the internet. I'm going to have 10 people come to my club and I'm going to make one of the requirements to join my club that you have to be celibate. Now, if I just take the first 10 people that want to be in my club and I've put that limitation on the club, like if you're going to come in this club, you have to be celibate. You have to then, if we're not doing any kind of um, screening on who those 10 people are, those are 10 people trying to avoid their sexuality. Maybe it's because of some kind of spiritual reason. But that's probably like statistically like not the case. People trying to avoid their sexuality are people who are ashamed of their sexuality. And then it's, well, why are they ashamed of their sexuality? And then you can realize like what they basically like rang the dinner bell for bad sexual behavior. And then you have people chasing away from their own sense of shame, you know, enter this institution that's going to welcome them. And the the whole idea is you can just turn your back on that sexuality. But then if you don't understand the process of how sexuality and spirituality merge, if you have no idea of that concept then yes, the abstinence is just building and building and building. And that's what we learn from like dream yoga and lucid dreams or astral projection. I mean, there's no escaping this. You can't get out. Like that's what, like a lot of what spiritual celibacy is. It's like, if you want it, you're going to get confronted. Like there's, there's no... There's no like clear path where you get out scot-free. Like, it doesn't work that way. So if you're going to choose this path, I mean, it's going to tempt you. And But the idea is like if you haven't even made the connection that those dream temptations and where they are in the karmic cycle and, and spirituality, a lot of that I think people think they're getting away with something. Like, is God in my dreams? Does God know what happens in my dreams? Like, my dreams are are mine, right? Those are hidden from God. God can't see me in my dreams. But they think they have a clear path of exploration. So it's just fueling the bad behavior because they have no mechanism to actually confront it. Because to actually confront it, like, you would understand that there's no hiding place. Because God is you. So all that stuff you're doing to justify, all that stuff you're doing to try to stay hidden, hidden from who? It's you. The judgment is you. The responsibility is you. But they bypass that whole thing. And they think they're getting away with it because like the priest doesn't know. 
And so it, it's, they're just, it's a snowball. And then next thing you know, you have, I mean, what we saw with the, with the Catholic fiasco. Beautifully said. I can tell you one thing in terms of like just exploring um, celibacy in a spiritual way. There, There is nothing you can do to like increase the bombardment of temptation. There's no better way to do it. And that's why Gene Hart gives a bunch of those um, basically warnings like if you don't understand what you're doing, like don't even attempt this. And I don't mean to put myself like on some kind of pedestal saying I do. I'm just mean I'm talking from experience. Like you shut that area down of your life and it's not shut down. It's the reverse of that. You shut that area down in your life and it's, it's like a rubber band. It springs into this dream temptation. And now you kind of get to see what you're made of. And you're going to fail and you're going to make mistakes and you're going to have to witness things and you're going to have to work through shining the light on that darkness, which is, you know, the entire lust of humankind. And can you navigate that labyrinth and start to understand the transmutation of lust into love? And I mean, it's a... It's a very, very tricky process. Yeah, next next podcast I'm going to have. Uh, not say that that's your thing, but it it seems more your thing right now, and fasting seems more my thing right now. So I'm gonna. I'm going to have some good fast for the next podcast and where it takes me uh, from the breath work as well. By the way, before I get into this next uh, topic I wanted to talk about, the breath work after after we had a conversation yesterday is pretty intense, man. And uh, you you don't know what happened today. Like uh, I had a tour, but I have – consciously remembered doorways with this like it's mm-hmm. doing like something first of all when when we had the comment we talked yesterday afternoon on the phone for a few and my hand has always been my go-to thing and after what happened to you in may it sent me into more of a like a calm breath one i'd never had before but Ever since you said that yesterday, mechanically, what we talked about as far as achieving a new state makes a lot of sense. I I felt like I was charging last night. Literally, I felt like I had plugged myself in and I was on charge. Because your meditation now turns into, you know, I I, when I text you at seven or eight o'clock at night, it was... um, I might have only went away like a couple of times. And I had, I think I went to the store. Uh, 
I went to the store down the street and I was having synchronicities like crazy. A black cat jumped in front of the truck. But here's the kicker, though. Here's here's the kicker. I didn't react to the synchronicities either. And I'm not saying I reacted like in a crazy way before, but I'm saying that this is like very, 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 very subtle where you can just get a little bit of excitement, a little bit of, of mesmerized nature. When you don't do that, it seems to keep compounding itself. It's almost if you react the other way, it takes away. So the charge keeps charging, keeps charging like nothing. The yellow brick road, nothing's going to stop you. Nothing's going to stop that charge because the other side of that is you can get caught up in. um, I think we even talked about this, like fascination is a trap. Fascination is a big word. As soon as you get fascinated with something, even yeah, that's the opposite of like the anger for hypnosis, like uh, fascination, you know, people that are mesmerized they're that you can get those people as well. Like it's very, very, it's out of, it's out of that true state. So what I found was when I, when I stayed in that, I was, I was with the family downstairs and I was like, man, I am like, charging here i didn't even feel like vibrating i was like i am charging something up i was and the only thing that i could compare it to was like a battery i felt like i was a battery at that point and i was so i know it's a bad analogy it's it's the only way i can put it into words but there's something to the breath and there's times where i should have been checked out today but i wasn't and like I was, I went into like a boardroom where there was a few people. We had a big meeting today and I found myself on my breath and I was taken back because it seems to be a little bit more intense than your hand. Uh, and, you know, I definitely think we're onto something as far as uh, how long you do it for and what we've talked about as far as I already know from experience, like being at that lower consciousness level, it took a certain amount of time, even though I was sincere the very first time. That's the point. Like this doesn't have anything to do with sincerity. There's some bit of mechanics about how long and how committed you are for a period of time. I don't know why it is that way, but it seems to be that way. If you want to go to a new state, which is there. And we both know it's there. Yeah, I, I know I can find myself trying to overcomplicate things and I'm always looking for ways to, you know, increase my ascension level or increase my consciousness, increase my awareness. And I think I can get a little lost at times. But the one of the ones that is like coming back home and that is like in my pursuit of knowledge and um now it's backed up with my own experience and that is this breath so it's just we've talked about it multiple times on the podcast but it's just relentless commitment to staying in the breath and i i feel exactly the way you do it's 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 those times where you wouldn't expect it like in the boardroom or in a meeting or like face to face with somebody and you and there's like gaps 
So you're using discernment. Like, do I need to engage? Do I need to say something? Do I need to show interest? So you, you have discernment where you can let your mind take an action if action is required, but then you have these gaps. And what this does is like when you hit a gap, it's like you find yourself back in the breath. And it's like, oh, I, I, I'm present and back in the breath. And I mean, if you can just like imagine like an orange, you imagine an orange and you try to keep that orange in your mind. And eventually it's going to fade, but keep paying attention and what, what appears after the orange. That's all your, your standing guard. And the breath is the like watchtower. So it's the object. It's the object that the Buddhists um, promote. It's the object to stay present on. It's always with you. And not only that, it's constantly signaling like how well you're doing on your regulation. Because like you said, a synchronicity or something, like you'll notice it in your breath. Your breath changes. So it's this perfect place for the attention to be basically going through like a wake. So you will have times where you're like, damn, I lost the breath. And and you go back to the breath. And what's happening there? It's like a little mini wake up. And now you find yourself doing that more and more. But when you translate that to dream yoga or to lucid dreaming, you're creating processes where you're waking up to your own consciousness. And yet now you're, instead of waiting for the dream experiences, you're building the mechanics during the day. And those mechanics will transfer to stuff that's happening at night. And so now you're maintaining a consciousness that doesn't seem to be going offline near as often. There is a mystical element to this. And that's the the next place. Um, according to the Buddhists, according to all the, it's a 10-step process of staying committed to the breath, the awareness of the breath. There's a 10-step process. By step four, it turns mystical. And I don't know how to describe it because I haven't um, experienced it, but the idea is you've put so much attention on the breath that the breath returns that attention to you. And we kind of have seen some of that demonstrated with you and your hand. Like I always considered you um, super grounded and we've seen what you're able to do with your hand. We've seen you like um, basically mesmerize somebody next to you on the podcast because you can you can clearly put a lot of attention into your hand and to the point where like you can physically see the hand and the arm responding. So there's that response. Like the, the hand is responding back. The breath in, in relation to air. So something mystical happens there where the breath and the air responds back. And now you have, some kind of synergy that all I've done is read about, but it definitely sounds like um, 
I mean, certainly something I'm going to run experiments and trying to explore. But the breath speaking back with that air sigil and you apparently you get a permanent position in the mind's eye to stand guard now instead of the breath. So it's like it's like breaking the seven seals like and there's a seal that is broken by staying relentless in the breath, which opens up the next seal that has to be worked on, which reminds me of Revelations. Do you compare that to the ascension from the 3D to the 4D and the 5D being past time-space, which is the state I believe you were in, uh, past thought? I think for two weeks you were in the 5D state, which is two up from... 3D lower consciousness. There's a chart. Is that the same ascension that you're seeing? And and I say that because there's like a there's 60, 70, 80, 90, and then the Akashic records. Right. Um, yeah, that stuff. I mean, it sounds right. I mean, I, f- I do feel like it's very, very hard to like, you know, claim a certain um, ascension level like from that time then. Um, it's certainly something to that degree. I mean, it's definitely some kind of um, temporary ascension level to, you know, basically kick my butt in gear. <clears throat> but in terms of like, what would you classify it? Um, I just, I don't feel like I can say, um, but that's one of the reasons I'm super interested in moving forward and trying to understand how people have achieved this through other forms of devotion and mechanics. And this one in particular, I mean, I, I keep coming back to this one and it is, I mean, you're basically committing all day every day to trying to keep your awareness in the breath. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a maddening project and it, the estimates are anywhere from three months to years of this practice before, but <clears throat> I like the idea of that discipline lending to a broken seal of ascension, because what that represents is like a, now a new platform to rest your spirituality on that you're working from that level from that point on. Um, I found a diagram here. Dimension wise. One, unconscious, two, subconscious, three, physical. Three, etheric. 
Subtle energy body, chakras, second physical, four astral, five mental Christ Buddha. And then it goes on and up from there until God's source. Yeah, the etheric's interesting too in terms of trying to find you know, the ether, everything coming out of the ether. Okay, here's the one I was talking about. This one made the most sense. It's from um, multi-dimensional universe. Okay, yeah, this is why it made sense. So, okay, you have lower fifth dimension. What would lower fifth dimension be? Subconscious, unconscious, in, in infraconscious? So that's like the opposite of 5D, like unconscious 5D, right? Lower conscious in the astral. <clears throat> People that are not awake, yep. even in the astral. Third dimension, the physical body. So third is like, this is it. Shopping mall. Shopping mall. Fourth dimension, the virtual body. No, I'm sorry, the vital body. And then fifth dimension gets into... The mental body and the astral body. Sixth dimension gets into the Buddha body, the divine soul. And then seventh or zero dimension. Dharmakaya, have you said that? The reality body? Before that, emanation body, perfect resource body, and then the ultimate understanding that there's a reality body called the Dharmakaya, the seventh or zero dimension. But yeah, it's cool to see. I actually start. <laughs> I think it's the OA that made me actually start to... Maybe not. I, I, yeah, though, maybe I started looking into it like a week or two before, like the different dimensions and understanding like what we're doing when, cause you want to understand the astral body, what it's doing. Like it's, it's a different dimension. Um, outside of your body is a different dimension. And we talk about, you know, some of the stuff I watched on Gaia and, and how our technology has come like we, we don't even understand the technology of like extraterrestrials because we're looking for them in the 3D, but we're not even understanding or comprehending like the 5D and they're pretty much already here and watching us and we have no clue. But I do believe that the government understands that now, which a lot of people I think are on to that because there's some things that are going on that are unexplainable that I believe that they understand that now not that you should be worried or anything i mean I'm, i don't even think there's any um reason to worry as far as like you know we tend to worry in the 3d as these people are going to come that are going to be 12 feet taller than us and they're going to be able to beat us up you know it's not right 
that's not the idea, especially when you're dealing with universe travel. The only way that someone could get to us was the idea of what um, traveling at the speed of thought would be, which you we already like you know, they, they, Elon Musk and they all talk about going to Mars. It's like if we're talking about doing that in the 3D, you might as well even stop the conversation because it gets kind of ridiculous because we don't even have a fuel to get us there. Like, and when you're talking about fueling, you're talking about something so ignorant as far as getting to somewhere in the 3D. That's like, uh, it's, it's ignorant, really, uh, if you break it down to what already might be here and, and watching us. Makes perfect sense. Um, but the OA really, wow, that was that was a good watch I, I couldn't stop watching the oa because of the other dimension um it was perfectly aligning with my studies on what i was doing and then i turned the oa on i'm like oh my god i can't put this series down like it's perfectly and you know as well as i do it's hard to watch stuff without meaning so you gotta try to find stuff that is synchronistic to your path and when you do, you find like, uh, yeah, uh, I need to watch the OA. And uh, I that you know what? That was the week I was sick, too. I was a couple weeks ago when we took a break from the podcast. I was at home. So I was um, I was doing a little work from home. It was the week before Christmas and New Year's. I think I was on vacation that week, but I was I was doing a lot of office work that week and I would go in and. Uh, uh, I just lay down at two o'clock and watch a couple episodes. I mean, it was, it was good. It was on, along the lines of the same kind of meaning that I got out of the matrix along those lines. It was, it was up there. Yeah, that was, it was so funny cause there was definitely something going on between you and I there I don't even know if I've talked about it to you yet, but you like out of the blue, like I talk to you pretty much every day, but like out of the blue, like you just gave me some kind of like octopus thing. I think you were saying like, these things are aliens. Like you, you'd obviously just watch something about octopus and you're just trying to convey the message, like how crazy these things are and how like maybe smart they are, like how much consciousness they might have. Like it, whatever like sparked your interest and you were just passing it along. When I got that octopus text, it's like the OA hit me like a brick to the head. And I was like, Oh my God, I have to watch the OA because I had watched that before kind of like V for Vendetta where I'm like looking back on a title. I'm like, Oh, I'm pretty sure there's some concepts in that that are going to be interesting now. And so, yeah, I was super excited for you to see it because I knew going into it that I'm like, yeah, this is really intense. But I mean, starting off with like near-death experience, like, you know, what is a near-death experience? And I mean, they they do such a good job of like exploring the narrative of near-death experience. And I mean, just where it goes from there, I mean, the captivity and what that does to the self and what that does to spirituality and how 
she was, you know, basically manifested an angel. I mean, drops her whole name, drops her whole identity, like takes on the name OA, the original angel. Um, and I remember like the first time seeing it, like almost being judgmental about like how crazy the movements are and stuff. But even with that, and like, it was so moving the first time I saw it. And the second time I saw it, by the time you get to the last scene in the first part, like my body, the response in my body, and I'm super calm, super present because I was ready for it. And my whole body's just tingling watching this unfold. And it's, it was a super intense, like physiological response I got from that show. That was, um, it, it was interesting. It was very, very interesting. And it makes you wonder, cause you can't duplicate. It's not like you can go watch it again and duplicate it. It's like these moments that build, but it's like, man, something was firing on all cylinders with that. And you can almost like start to, when you feel, it's almost like, you know, when a river overflows and it comes through and it like knocks a bunch of shit down and he like clears a new path. And now you have that nice open channel for the water. It felt like that where like I knew this time different than last time to let that feeling through. But I mean, it was pushing a lot of stuff through. I was, it was definitely the most intense thing I've watched since I've been in this state for sure. It was a it was a gift for me. I mean, to be able to watch that, I was a lot of synchronistic moments, um, things that were seeds that I felt like were coming to fruition when I was watching that. Um, it was just a, a really good rendition on the examination of what happens to you when you die and better yet what happens to you even not when you die like what what is alive inside of you now that is possibly trapped and it was eye-opening and very synchronistic for me it was it was really good to watch. It's probably something I'm going to watch again. It's one of those kind of like the matrix where you watch it again. And you're like, didn't see that the first time, which is kind of like a good book that's wrote in a highly conscious way. I mean, you can read the book three times and pick it up and read it a fourth time. Uh, so I will definitely be revisiting uh, that one for sure at some point. It, it does a, such a good job of like demonstrating. I mean, there's that mystical part of it, but I mean, the way that they did it and I could, you can relate so clearly where it it's just the narrative of the, the awakened soul. So like the, the, the great scene was one of the last scenes where, um, she gets the fifth movement and 
she's there with the lady that they have to help. I mean, it makes, and you know, Homer's there. It makes no intellectual sense whatsoever ever to help this lady. Like, of course you have to see the show and understand what I'm talking about. But the point is like, it doesn't make any sense for them to help. Like for them to help is just, it goes against them in every way that you can think of intellectually, but how she just makes her stand right there with the conscience and just says, if we don't help right now, she says it out loud. If we don't help right now, then we're not who we say we are. And it was like just this clear moment of the conscience like ringing through. And of course, you know, it's not so dramatic in your daily life, but I see it like that all the time now in my life. Like one of the things, so there's like multiple things that I'm shifting away from. And one of them with this new breath is I've always played video games and I can see now like in the game where it's aroused my attention tremendously, but it's not bringing my will with it. It's like disconnected. So attention's at a 10 and my will is at a zero or a one. And you can just, what it's doing is it's stretching that awareness and the consciousness. It's a, it's a very mechanical thing that's happening. And the idea would be you don't want to like sit in that state for very long. But it's like something you couldn't see without like a mechanical conscience. It's something you couldn't see without the ability to be very, very honest with yourself and understand like some of the justifications that you might want to whisper in your head. But when you look at it, you're like, damn, I can see it now. It's, it's, it's that attention. So imagine like trying to just be in the breath and sit down and play call of duty. You see what I'm saying? Like you can't do it. The attention's too high. You're too mesmerized by it. And so the will to stay in the breath you can't bring it. You can't do it. Believe me, I've tried. It just, it, it, it few moments go by and you, and you lose the will that gets disconnected from the attention. And it's understanding a lot of those mechanical things. And they were on display in the OA. There was tons of times on display where you see that conscience being developed and put on display in the narrative that were beautiful that I could totally relate to. Yeah, it's, this is from um, what did you think about the attention and relaxation on or have you even really explored that yet because that actually helped me quite a bit so on the inhale attention on the exhale relaxation so let the attention come and then let the relaxation go it's been huge 
for me. Um, Have you been on point with the relaxation? Do you feel it like when you need to relax? Yes. Yeah. It's becoming, uh, you know, I was getting pretty heavy in meditation with the breathing. So it was pretty synchronistic when uh, you, you brought that. And I think I shared a tweet the same day that we uh, discovered that. And and it came through that that night. Oh yeah. Tension is who you think you should be. Relaxation is who you are. I mean, I'd never seen anything that cut and dry on breathing, and we had just talked about it. And yeah, it's the constant breath too. I mean, realizing second to second. day by day here's the kicker for me like in spirituality you can get lost in the next moment like the next moment like what's going to bring me the next present moment and you can start to externalize it like oh it's going to be that pretty tree oh that brought me back in this is how can i keep myself moment to moment to moment to moment and then bring in the tree you know so it's more of a constant uh, practice. Seems to be way more intense than my hand, um, although I do it in tandem a lot. Whenever I start, you know, realizing my breath, I've probably been in my breath the whole time we've been doing this podcast. Pretty much the whole time, but my hand glows warm just because it's part of my spirituality. So it's secondary. Like if I'm in my breath. I always feel my hand, almost always. It's not as much attention as putting all my attention in my hand, but it's a tandem thing because it's been my spiritual hand my whole life. The breath. That's what you're talking about with the river. You just have a, you have a channel open to it that is so worn to that area that the awareness has an easy path there. I will say this, when you're ready, the breath should become number one. And I I say that from experience because I was not always ready for the breath to be number one. And I know that sounds really trivial, (laughs) but I'm at a time in my life where my breath can be number one. And uh, I'm only speaking from experience. Uh, You know, if someone told me at 20 years old, when I first broke through, like, like, do your breath. I wasn't ready for that. The hand was the perfect thing. Um, and maybe it could be because of what I've grown out of um, and my lungs getting the way they are now and to a bit of strength. It could be personal to me, uh, but there is no better time for me to put breath number one than right now in my life. And I mean that with all sincerity because it's been an ever evolving thing um, for me. And breath has not always been the easiest things to tackle. When I was a kid, I really struggled with breath. I mean, really struggled. Um, so it's something I've stayed away from until I was really ready. And I, I can tell you, like, the fact that I don't, have issues with like hyperventilating with how much is unbelievable 
because I, I probably, if I'd have done this, like tw- I might've put myself in the hospital, but I've, I've, I've evolved into something different with my breathing in my lungs. And like I told you in May, when that happened, I, I knew there was a newer breath. I knew that, but yeah, uh, 15, 10, 20. I don't I could have done this with the breath. It's, it's evolved. So I'm, I mean, definitely not recommending that someone just jump into it because if, if you're the person that, you know, if you take a inhaler around with you, I, I wouldn't suggest staying in the breath. You might want to start with the hands. What I'm saying is if you want to fix the breath, I had to go away from the breath. If that makes sense. Yeah. And now my, my breath has seemed to have uh, matured to a level that I, I mean, definitely doesn't need any work more. And I do some intense breathing. Like when I meditate, I start, I do some intense holding a breath. All these things would have sent me into like these weird patterns where I wouldn't be able to get out of. And I, you know, I would be trying to get a deep breath and, uh, and it would just, it would, it would cause more harm than good. And I can't get there anymore, no matter what kind of breathing I do during meditation. So I explore it more. And now that breath can be number one. I think it should be number one. Yeah. It, also, like when you get it to um, like a day in, day out, like a 24-7 um, commitment to try to be aware of the breath. And what it does is it reveals the areas of your life where there's a, there's a mechanical mishap going on. And, you know, maybe it's like one of the other ones I found, like when I'm coaching, it's crazy. Like I, I'm so into the idea of coaching that, I mean, I could have like a half hour go by. I'm like, oh my God, get back to the breath cane. So I'm having these major wake up, but all you're doing is revealing the areas where you're going unconscious and that's what was happening with like the video game and it's crazy because what i did is i just switched to chess so you just for that whatever that leisure that i wanted you can just switch to chess and it's like my will and my attention can stay completely together with that there's no separation but it kind of, that's interesting if you think about it. So you have two different computer programs that are running. One of them, I'm saying, separates my attention from my will. The other one keeps my will and my attention together. Which makes me wonder, and the only problem with chess, I mean, chess in terms of entertainment is fine, but it's like it's not like an immersive thing. It's not like one of those immersive um, experiences that are possible with video games or with movies or whatever. Um, but it does like bring up a good question. Like what would happen if you took like Eckhart Tolle and Michael Singer and you put them together with like the top video game designers in the world? Like, can they put something together that's mechanically revealing? Is that possible? 
So you would need somebody like Eckhart or Michael Singer in order to like have somebody watching, like, would this be the thing? Would this be like aligned in all the mechanical ways to like inspire consciousness and awareness? So they would be the check on it. And then like, is there a way to program that? Because I never thought so until I switched from like an immersive immersive video game to like chess. It was very, it was very eye-opening to make that switch. I'm like, oh, you can dial this in. Which brings you to like, I mean, you know, the matrix and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I know it's a big hypothetical, but I was kind of having a fun time with that question. What would happen if Michael Singer and Eckhart Tolle made a video game? Probably be a lot of birds and park benches in it. <laughs> well, if you remember the matrix from, so this is late nineties. And if you go back to the first time you saw the matrix and I'll use my own experience as an example, it did wake me up some, it moved me in the right direction. For the first time I had the question like, oh, if we can imagine a simulation, how do we know we're not in a simulation? Even though it was completely intellectual and completely contextual, I was moving in the direction of awareness just from that movie. Yeah, I see your point. That's, I mean, that's what we've done whole podcast on whether or not those are intentional or not, or whether or not that was just their imagination and, or whether or not they had had these massive awakenings where they got the information from that, um, to pull off a movie like that. And even through the sequence of all four of them, you know, It's hard to tell if they were intending to wake people up with that movie or or whether or not they just imagined it up and it, it came as a indirect result. I don't know much about those guys. Uh, I haven't done much research about who they are. I guess when I see something like V for Vendetta or OA could be worth investigating their background to see if it was inspired. Uh, Cause at OA I see like people hit the nail on the head and don't even possibly know that they did, you know, it, the matrix seems overwhelming. Like how could you hit the nail on the head and not realize it? That seems overwhelming to me. And then V for Vendetta still out of all of them, like that, is experiential. The only way that that movie was written is because someone understood what a massive spiritual awakening meant. Cause you don't play a scene of the girl walking outside and the raindrop hitting you in a different way. There's only one way you can know that. That's the only movie I've seen that there's only one way you can know that the matrix. Yeah. You could, yeah, it's, it's, it's fiction. It dances around it. 
They hit the nail on the head. OA, you know, they're there. The only movie, V for Vendetta, like they show the awake. The only way you can know that is from experience. That's the only way. Like they completely like laid out a path of why you need to suffer to have an awakening. Why comfortability opposes awakening. I mean, they completely laid it out. And the only way that I think that you can do that is through experience. Unless you're just having these inspired moments and they don't know where they're coming from. Do you think you can make V for Vendetta without having the knowledge of a spiritual awakening? I don't see how you could. I mean, that, that's my point. I mean, it's like, to what degree have we explored that concept? Because we have these examples. And I just, after I had like that little mental shift in my, in my personal understanding, I mean, because you can, if you, when you, when the matrix came out, like it had, it had the force of like a, an awakening within the collective consciousness. And it wasn't even all positive. You remember Columbine was at the time considered a direct result of the matrix. They were in the trench coat mafia. They dressed like Neo and Trinity when they went into Columbine to kill all those kids. And the idea was they desensitized humanity because they saw humanity as part of the system. That was demonstrated by the Matrix. I mean, that's the whole last scene when Neo and Trinity go off. I mean, they have no regard for human life at that point because are you looking at me or are you looking at the woman in the red dress? Look again. Everybody's part of the system. So you can see you can see the negative impact as well because it literally shifted the collective consciousness. We were just talking about this last week from Ted Bundy to school shooting. Remember how we always talk about it like you have this one way but that side gained ground as well. Like that's that's the point where it shifted. That's the pinpoint where it shifted. And we went from one display of evil to now this new display of evil, which looks like the end of an action movie with just guns a-blazing. But that was the idea that was planted from the Matrix where for the first time, I think people were understanding that all of humanity is just part of the system. You know how it describes in Revelation that, and um, forgive me for the words I'm about to use, I don't mean any ill will as far as uh, the end of the earth, just using the words to make the point. But when, when, when they talk about the end times, can you see that? in terms of how that may have been passed down as a Mandela effect that 
um, as a more global consciousness awakening, like you take, like what you just said, it was a monumental event when the matrix comes out. It's, you just said that you woke up a little tiny fraction from the movie, the matrix. Like there was something mechanical that happened as we move in. Um, it always describes in the end times that the other side gets worse too. So you get into like the, what they talk about in the tribulation era. Um, because as far as like how we awaken is so how evil raises their game as well as the end times, you know, but it's not, but that's the Mandela effect. Like the end times is like, no, you idiot. It's like the end times, like we're transitioning to the new earth, like the end times, the evil will up its game. Same way the evil does when you focus on your breath minute by minute, second by second, what happens to your thoughts? I saw thoughts today that I was like, God dang, it ups, it, it ups its game. That's me. One consciousness. Now, collective consciousness waking up somewhat together, more of the numbers going ascension, what happens collectively on that side, and what type of manipulation and ownership rises on that side, end of times, tribulation, you see it clearly? Oh, yeah. And I mean, that's why I think the Matrix in that event is so interesting. Because like on a personal experience, like I had the awakening in one way where for the first time I was really understanding the implications of simulation theory. And at the same time, once you had Columbine and then like I realized like the trench coat mafia and you and you hear their perspective and why they were able to do what they did. Don't forget, like this was the first time this had ever happened. We didn't have a school shooting before Columbine. But I remember I literally like identified with them. I'm like, oh, I and I don't I'm not making excuses for them. I'm not saying that what they did was anything other than horrific. I'm just saying like I could see how their mind got there. I could see it. I could see how they just walked in and they were able to shut down the humanity of everybody. I could see it so clearly and I'm, and you're horrified by it. You're like, Oh my God. Like they put that principle that I can understand like into practice at the barrel of a gun. I'm like, holy cow. And so it's funny because I think the matrix over time, it's really weird when you look at it. Like, I don't think that they're blamed for Columbine anymore. It's almost like the collective memory won to the good side because I haven't heard anybody talk about the matrix in terms of a movie that negatively impacted the society. You don't hear that story that much. I mean, you hear that about like certain video games and certain movies 
that come along and they get that bad rap. Like what was that football movie where like they yell, they lay on the yellow lines in the middle of the road. And then like a couple of kids get killed. And then the movie gets just like seriously blackballed for like the rest of its life. Yeah. I don't recall. So you would, you would think there would be like some momentum about a negative reaction to the matrix, but with the matrix four coming out and all, I mean, I didn't hear a word about Columbine. I didn't hear anything about it. Forgive me for not knowing, but was that these two were actually connected in the news, Columbine and the Matrix? Like people were so, back when Columbine happened, they were actually like it was they were blaming the Matrix for. Or they were saying that the Matrix was inspirational. The killers had used the Matrix as justification for their actions. Oh, they said that when they were interviewed. Beforehand. So like how they have like their little manifestos and stuff about what they were doing. Oh yeah, like computer like what they And they doing. literally wore the outfits. Yeah. They called the they had a club called the Trench Coat Mafia. Yeah. And the club was built and all they did is wear trench coats and fantasize about killing humans. Until one day they went in and actually did it. But it was it was definitely like a clear example of like a movie hitting the collective consciousness and having like this big wave of effect. Some of it toward like I remember also like simulation theory and like talking about like is it possible we're in a simulation theory? Like that took off from that point in time and just never really um, slowed down ever since then. Like that's discussed all the time now. But then there was this other level where like, as soon as you open the door to that thought, there is a new pathway to dehumanizing everybody that wasn't there before. And it's on a level where we've actually seen it manifested um, in blood and bullets. I had one more topic that I wanted to talk about. In the manifestation category. I was doing a Gnostic lesson and I've never heard of thoughts referred to as trapped consciousness. And this whole week when I heard it, I was like, got to talk about that. I got to talk about it because when you're talking about manifesting like your whole life, ever since you were a kid, you don't realize who you are. Obviously, you don't work. You realize what seeds you're throwing out. Consciousness. You don't realize what 
what cause and effect is. So when I heard the word trapped consciousness for the definition of what thoughts are, meaning that I guess they could initially come from you, but they're not of you, is the fact that you can manifest anything in your life. The idea that people come to the point of not being able to go on and and you know, getting depressed or having anxiety, it really boils down to uh, very intrusive thoughts that neither one, you don't have the ability to be objective to or, and you don't know what they are and where they come from. So even down to the mass shootings or Ted Bundy, everything culminates from cause and effect or a thought that becomes you. But as you awaken in these states, you're still dealing with trapped consciousness. So it, you know, me at 43 and just my life and all the trapped consciousness I may have in my, in my, what Gene Hart calls your psychological city a lot of what you discover in your lucid dreams is unaware. Some here, you know, some lucid dreaming, observing. That term really opened my eyes for how to combat that. And one of the things that is the best way to combat is that breath you're talking about, the mechanical work, because it, it's as though you're going to battle and and if you want to see trapped consciousness rise, which is exactly what you want to do. You don't want to be afraid or you don't want to react. You don't want to let it become you and how it becomes you as you react to it and you add emotion like resentment. And then all of a sudden you are that trapped consciousness when you don't understand that like a depressed person, why am I a depressed person? Because you had a de- de- depressed thought and you reacted to it with a negative emotion and that became your identity because it was trapped consciousness. It can, it needs to die somehow because it's been manifested out but it'll leech on to you like to continue, but it needs to be dissolved. It needs to be, but that that's the whole point. Like my ignorance when I was younger, like you can let stuff slip in so easily. And all of a sudden it's your identity. Will Smith pops in, into mind. Like that was a big moment for all of us. It in, and you realize what trapped consciousness is, but Will Smith times a thousand. Like that was a moment for you. It's like, why am I so angry? Very easy to be angry at Will Smith that night. But think of all the manifestations your whole life. For example, the Will Smith thing. Something happened when you were 25 years old that did not properly come to light. And I talked about this as being like, you know, Ferris wheel of pain as well, but it comes around and, and 
bubbles up, the more present you become, you can either react to it or not react to it. No reaction, whatever you need to do as far as acknowledgement to bring it to light and watch it dissolve. But I love that term. I said all that to say, I love that term, drought consciousness, <laughs> the definition of thoughts, because uh, it's so true. It, it it gives a good perspective of this path. Like you need to understand what's coming up. You need to understand what not to react to, which is basically everything <laughs> in in your mind, especially anything you want to re- react to as a negative emotion, because it is mystical on that side too. It's mystical. Like, how do you become an identity of a trapped consciousness that carries a negative emotion that becomes you? Just react to it. Just resent it. See what happens. You become angry. Was there any reason for you to be angry at Will Smith? Did he slap you? No. I know, right? No. But it's very easy to become and and that that was in a now moment like you created it right now and just jumped i'm talking about two like things that come up 20 years ago that bring to light like those things have to be the the legion doing this breath work has provoked legion they get desperate the more you breathe, the more they want to take a breath, and it ain't happening. Correct. Yeah, you kick up the ego's desperation level. Um, and it, I mean, so you, for me, like, I just remind myself, because you can get frustrated, like, in terms of, like, lucidity, like, uh, the the yoga dreaming. You can find yourself in, like, a little bit of a rut, like, I'm just tired of witnessing like that ignorance. I'm tired of witnessing um, that unconsciousness. But you also have to remember that there's nowhere for the light to shine except into the darkness. Like that's it. And then it's like, well, why is the light shining into the darkness? Like, why do I need to see myself in this level of ignorance? Why do I need to see myself in this level of unawareness? Like, what is that serving? And of course, like, I know not to react to it, but what what do I get out of it? And when you're in the breath and you have it, and you have it on a daily discipline, you can start to see because what happens is the way you relate to the world, like that person just was angry and, you know, yelled at the cashier, you know, that person is already drunk and it's, you know, 11 o'clock in the morning, you know, that all these places where you would traditionally not understand how to escape judgment now you just realizing it doesn't really matter what behavior you witness out there it's already happened in here like all that stuff that you want to be judgmental of i mean you've done it all it's all in there so it's your compassion like 
you know, the, the 11 o'clock I've been there too. the angry for no reason. I've been there too. I've seen it. I had to shed light on it because it was still in there stirring around. But then when you see the behavior, that's, it's the mechanical link to compassion, not hoping for compassion or believing in compassion, but having compassion because you do understand that that just a might as well have been you. You're looking at yourself. And that's what I think um, in terms of the trap consciousness. That light that we're shining, I mean, there's definitely some aspect of it where you, you're shining it in terms of for other people, with other people, but its main... Its main exploratory component is that light is shining into the darkness. And that's what that's what awareness is. Awareness is just looking at more and more pieces of yourself to become more and more compassionate to the outside world. Yeah, I just see it as little bubbles uh, of creation of an unaware being that you send out, you know, this bubble in your psychological city. And because of universe laws, you have cause and effect and you have karma. Karma is like a boomerang. Whatever you send out incorrectly will come back to haunt you until you deal with it correctly. And I guess just to give a little of encouragement to it around the mechanics of it, I've failed miserably millions of times as far as holding that breath and bringing things to light. So I would just say that, you know, if for the example that if Will Smith came into my head and I was driving down the road and I caught myself for three seconds with a resentment emotion, like that judgment, like how could he just for a split second? And then your awareness kicks in. You're like, holy shit. I was just hating Will Smith. <laughs> all all <laughs> that's needed is not to react to you failing because you can react to you failing. All that's needed is a pullback. Like you don't need another reaction when it, the awareness kicks in, just be grateful that the awareness kicked in and that's enough. Because I think even in my younger days, you can get caught up in failing and then that adds another emotion, you know? So for me, it's always like that initial awareness, not to like resent yourself for failing because that's, that's another perpetuation cycle it's enough to pull back. And I think you can see that in meditation when you first start meditating. I mean, you're going to fail miserably all the time. I mean, it's, it's presence is, is a path and, and, and breathing is a path and it's, it's taken a long time uh, to get where I'm at as far as the, the state wise, but uh, only because of a, t a ton of failures. 
but the failure shouldn't define you. It's just, okay, I was just somewhere. I'm grateful that my awareness is here now. That's it. And then whatever took you off, you can say, well, what is the situation that took me off? Nine times out of 10, it maybe is something you need to bring up and just stare at. Like, obviously, I haven't either forgiven myself or I haven't forgiven this person. Like, something happened and I haven't not added a negative emotion to it. Like, I have to see it for what it is. And at some point, if something keeps coming back, you haven't done that. And the lesson is not to, like, just, you know let your awareness kick in. But the lesson is to stare at it too. I mean, you got to stare at it with no reaction, whatever it is, no matter how painful it is, whatever, you know, whatever it is, you have to feel it. You have to feel it in your body dissolve, but you can't add any, any emotion to it. You can't add negative emotion. You can't judge it. You can't judge that process. And then it becomes about you, the ego you. And the only way you can get past that is to just sit there and look at it. It's, it's an effortless process. We say it all the time, but one that the ego does not want you to be effortless. The ego wants to solve all your problems. I mean, the ego, the ego is the smartest person in the world. So It, it helps to understand like how real it is and how, how, how much of an entity it is, how much of a separate thing with, with its own, its own intention and its own will. It has nothing to do with you. And once you, once you can understand it like that, you can draw the comparison to like working with another person. Like if you're face to face with somebody and they get angry with you and you've gone through some level of awareness, you know that you don't have to react to that anger. So you can, you can spend some time with the world and the external world and you can see it. Like if you don't respond with anger, like it creates turmoil on the other side. It rebounds, it stirs more up. It it causes more effect to where the anger came from than if you had reacted to it. That's the same process that's happening on the inside though. Once you have an entity and it's it has your full attention but it does not have your reaction. And so everything that all the light of that intention is just now on that entity. And it's exposed and it's alone. And all you're doing is looking at it and it's, responding in the same way like a person res would respond in the external world it's all that force of what is trying to get out of you it's like a mirror just rebounds and goes right back onto it it's a destructive force and now you're just the witness 
And that witness could be more complicated. Like you said, there could be stuff that you have to feel. And that's, that's a real subtle, and it's good you said that, because that's a real subtle thing, because I still catch myself as like turning from the feeling. I still catch myself doing that just out of habit. I'm like, why am I like not trying to feel it? Like, it doesn't even hurt. Like, what? why am I turning away from the, like, let the feeling come. There, there's a subtle guard you have to stand there. But once it's into that feeling, because once the feeling comes and it's not from a reaction, it's from a place of stillness, from a place of still awareness, the body doesn't interpret those feelings unless you assign an interpretation. So if you're not going to assign an interpretation, it's just going to come through your system. And all of that is, is love. There's nothing else that comes in unless you assign it something else. So by the time you feel that whole way through by the and your awareness is now looking at it, you found your place of compassion. Oh, I really don't like what I did there, but I was young. I was stupid. I made a mistake and I don't need to dwell in the reaction of that mistake. Instead, I can accept it for what it is and it doesn't have anything to do with me right now. And I think that most of that comes from understanding how real the entity is. Yeah, the legion of, of of ego is a real thing. I mean, it's one that the path of ascension is to discover, discover, discover all those egos and expose them for what they are. And sometimes it's 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 layers upon layers. I mean you are dealing with years of uh, of entities that have become your manifestations from ignorance of manifesting. You know, if we were perfect from child to adulthood, you you obviously would have less intrusive thoughts. And I know there's some people that have made it through culture and uh but that's very few in itself but if you're like kane or myself you know being born in this place you're definitely on the path to find a way you know out of the matrix of of the egos which is always been manifested the incorrect way by you. And uh, that's the good thing about finding the correct way to manifest because then you can start to put out your own seeds of um, divinity. And those are 
those get insanely beautiful just as though you're looking at nature. But there's a point at which I think you practice the breath enough uh, to where you defeat all that. And that's what I would call salvation. Oh.